0: Would you stand your feet with me to honor God's word? We're in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll read verses 20 through 32. 1 Corinthians 11, starting with verse 20. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating... Each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus... On the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink in remembrance of Of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks, without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would add a blessing to the reading of your word that goes beyond our opinions or thoughts or anxieties. Lord, all of us came to church today for different reasons according to our own understanding, but for one reason according to your will. You're here, we're here for for your purposes, and you have in mind, you have it all straightened out in your mind, why our lives are going the way they're going, and why we're here together for this moment. And our request, Lord, is that you would reveal to us and show us more of the mystery of what you know and what you make known here in your word, so that we wouldn't be caught just playing church, but that we would be formed together for something greater than our own understanding that's driven by a peace and a power that can only be explained by who you are and what you do. We give this time to you. Amen. Uh, Welcome again to the Springs. If you're visiting, my, my name is Peter. I serve as the lead pastor. And today we start a new series that's entitled, why we gather. Why we gather. You see, when we capture the transcendent purpose of why we come to church, then with the Spirit's help, it helps us to live transcendently. Kind of makes sense. We have a transcendent understanding. It kind of leads to behavior and and living that's different, right? And on the other hand, if If we kind of have insufficient reasons for why we we get up and uh, comb our hair and uh, get ready for church and come and put on a smiley face and do the religious things, if we have an insufficient reason for coming to church, it will understandably lead to insufficient living. Every first Sunday of the month, as our tradition, we have been receiving the Lord's table, the, the communion, the Lord's Supper together. We take communion the first Sunday of every month, and that's what we're going to do together today. But we're going to go a little bit deeper into the meaning of what the Lord's Supper is, not in just that we're, we're preaching through today and actually the rest of the month in our teaching, but as you'll see today, we're, we're going to actually do it a little bit differently and have more time to appropriately uh, approach the table of the Lord in a manner that's worthy of what he's done for us in a way that can help reboot us like we need to be often to be able to think rightly about how God is moving in us and to be able to pivot off of that and be able to live appropriately to that. So let's go back into our passage and see what the Holy Spirit is doing to help us understand why we gather and we're going to see this month in our teaching not only why we gather, but the power of timeless things that we can do while we gather. Like praying together and, and confessing. There's life and death in the power of the tongue. We're going to talk about these things, but we're going to practice them together. Amen? We won't be caught spectating, but participating as God's called out people. Now, how does that relate to communion or the Lord's table and our passage? Holy Spirit's going to help us understand maybe something that you just heard read for the first time in your life, or maybe you've read through it a bunch of times. The Lord has something more for you. Turn to, turn to your neighbor and say, God has something more for you. A little perspective before we get back into this. The letter of the Corinthians was written to a church in the town of Corinth. Boom, that's Bible 101 right there. It's a city called Corinth. It was a celebrated city in ancient Greece. Then it was an important Roman city by the time that this Bible was written, this New Testament passage, this letter. This church had the power of God present. These people didn't mess around with pretending things that they saw, they saw the power of God. They've experienced very real power. They they knew the people of God. They gathered as the people of God. And yet, with the power of God and the word of God and the people of God, they often took it for granted and lost sight of the purpose of all this stuff. And in that way, they actually did start messing around with what they really had. It's kind of like you and me when we have something very real that we're not careful to understand what God gives us and why. And Hughes was so important about this that I love and I'm so encouraged whenever I read anything about the Corinthians because they were such a hot mess and yet God never condemns them in this letter. He corrects them pretty severely all throughout, especially this first letter. But God is so gracious with people that have not only sinned in ignorance, but they come to know Jesus and they know better and they're still living a hot mess and God corrects them, gives them provision to be new. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Some of you may have come in here and never known anything about the Lord Jesus and your sin is a sin of ignorance. You just don't know any better. A lot of us, like me, our sin Whether it's at home, with our mouth, with with what we do throughout the week, our sin is not in ignorance. We know better, and yet we're still a mess. And so receive these words, the severity of them, with discipline. The Lord disciplines the child that he loves. Verse 20. When you come together, it's not for the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper you eat. He's saying, basically, you're doing something different. And eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I commend you in this? No, I will not. First of all, I want to point out Three different points as we go through this passage. The first is this God cares about how he's worshiped. That's my first point. God cares about how he is worshiped. Now, the first thing that we can see about how he is worshiped, God is worshiped by people, by people, not just persons individually. God is worshiped by a people that are called out and a people that gather together. Where do we see that? It's written into this assumption. The first words, when you gather. See, he'll go on to correct them, and we'll get into that. But before we get into the correction, let's just consider that at least they had this going for them. At least they had been making it a habit. Everyone say habit. They'd been making it a habit to gather together regularly. We can say weekly. They were getting together. From the very moment where God called out a people for himself, he spoke to Abraham. He said, Abraham, come and follow me. It says Abraham had faith and he followed him. Where? He didn't know. But he followed and obeyed the voice. And from that very moment, God said, I'm going to make a people for you. That people has gone through many different things over the millennia. But God's purpose for those people is always that his presence would be in them collectively. Which requires, for his redemptive purposes, for them to gather together. It's always been important for God's people to come together. So that's why the assumption is not if you come together, but when you come together. It's like when Jesus says, when you fast... He's not saying if you fast, he says when you fast, he says do it this way, right? He wants wants them to understand the purpose of the timeless disciplines that God has for his people. He says when you pray, some of us are like, dang, I should be doing that. When you pray, you see, he wants you to understand a deeper understanding of what it is, but understand as you're doing it, when you gather, he says. Now, I've, I've heard Christians kind of come against the importance, and I would say essentialness, if that's a word. I'm just going to go and make it a word. The, as, the essential importance of gathering. I've heard Christians say things like, uh, this, I got this a lot in Oregon when I grew up, Man, I can worship God out amongst the trees and nature. I'm like, okay, well, yeah, I guess you could do that. I could do it all by myself. Why do I need the church? For have heard others say, well, I can, I can, uh, I can go, go do God's mission and, and you know, honor Him and make disciples and evangelize. I can do that all on my own. Well, there's a difference between what I can do and what God has called me to do. And this is important. I I can do all sorts of things the wrong way and God still loves me, but he has something more for me. When you gather, it's important. Let me give you an example. My four-year-old daughter, Alma, she can technically feed herself on her own. Uh, She knows where the little snack jar is and unfortunately we know because of how she leaves wrappers out all over the house. She's a mess with it But she could technically survive at least like 36 solid hours on her own. She technically doesn't need us. But her belly is made for something more than just nutrients. And your belly is made for something more than just nutrients. The meal in our home is something sacred that is meant to cause us to grow together even as we're enjoying one another and we're enjoying the food that my wife cooks in a superior manner, I might add. It draws us together. It causes us to uniquely glorify God by being mutually satisfied in Him through what He provides in the food, but how also the food provides a context for a relationship. It points to Him. It draws us together. This is important. So yes, Alma could feed herself, but we're missing the point. The point isn't just to feed herself and get some nutrients. There's a deeper purpose. And the point for you, Christian, isn't just to do a little worship on your own and get your worship fix on, or to do a little bit of mission on your own and get kind of like your your adventure mission part on. God is drawing out a people to himself. And he forms a people to himself through meals and shared things that he does that cause us to enjoy him together. Give you another example if if any of y'all speak fluent jock like I do. Nick Foles. Nick Foles is, of course everyone knows, the, the quarterback for the Eagles momentarily this year. He was the he was the backup quarterback that turned into the Super Bowl MVP. Now, let's go back. Nick could have played in the Super Bowl without his team. He could have played. Now, it wouldn't have, have been safe to, to play without protection on the offensive line or fruitful without receivers to throw to or running backs to hand off to. But he could have played. He couldn't have won, though. And, and he probably wouldn't have survived very long. In the same way, as the called out people of God, with the enemy trying to tackle us, and what God has prescribed as the touchdowns for us, in his mission, it's a team sport. We're meant to gather together. Now let's go to the rest of that sentence. Some of y'all are like, math people are like, okay, well, if those three words took him 10 minutes, then we'll be here until... Don't worry about it, okay? <laughs> Verse 20, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. That's a pretty harsh statement. He's saying your religious activity, it's not valid. You're just playing around, and it's, that is not the Lord's Supper. That's not communion. It's like saying, hey, when, you know when you go down to the water, um... That's that's not baptism. Paul's correcting the church in Corinth because they were in sin, they were missing the point, and therefore they were missing the value of the sacrament, the gift, the sign that they'd been giving. And he is severely correcting them so that they can recapture it. He's not condemning them for having missed it. God cares about how he's worshipped. He cares for you. He doesn't want you to miss out in the value of that which is eternal and better than any value you can try to create for yourself or institute for yourself. He cares about how he's worshipped. That's why it goes on to say, whoever drinks the cup of the Lord, verse 27 goes on to say, in an unworthy manner, brings some condemnation and some judgment and that's not good. I don't want that for you. I care about how I'm worshipped. I don't want you to be missing out. I don't want you to be under judgment, to be sick and dying. There's, there's some severe stuff in here. I, I'm reminded in reading this like about the, the real judgment we place on ourselves through mishandling God and his people, mishandling our bodies, mishandling church things. Mis- misunderstanding the greater purpose for why God made, our, made us, our bodies, our, our, our five senses. We bring judgment on ourselves. God cares about how he's worshipped. I was reading Leviticus this week and the, the sons of the high priest, Nadab and Abihu. God had repeatedly said that, hey, I am holy Be holy as I am holy. And he gave him specific instructions for how he wanted them to worship him. And who was supposed to do what? Well, Nadab and Abihu, these sons of Aaron, they said, you know what? Since God's power has really been on all this stuff that he's doing, let's just have some more. You know, let's let's do something nice. They tried to do a little religious gesture to kind of, you know, make God happy. And so they lit some things and started some fires, you know, some some holy religious fires. But God never told them to do that. They were kind of being extra in a very very bad way. And so God killed them. Go read it for yourself. It, God wasn't pleased by their nice little jester. God cares about how he's worshipped. I'm not trying to put. Undo fear on us, like as if uh, we have to question everything we do. But look, we do have to examine ourselves and understand, God, help me to really capture the real purpose of this and not just presumptuously carry on based off of my familiarity rather than in a spirit of humility approaching you like you're real and you're holy. God cares about how he's worshipped. He's holy. Let's keep going on in our passage. We'll get to verse 23. I received from the Lord what I also had already delivered to you. Basically, you've kind of lost all this, but remember I, I told you about all this, and, and this isn't something I made up. I got it from the Lord. He says, I received that, I Delivered it to you that this, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We're, we're going to go back next week deeper into this passage that he's quoting here. Uh, and talk about remembrance and the power of collective remembrance. But what he's pointing out here is just, just hinting at the power of the symbol. Verse 25, he says, So in the same way he took the cup, and after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There's a proclamation and a power Not only in the words we hear in church, or the words we speak in church, but the things we do in church. He's saying, do this in remembrance of me. So, point one, God cares about how he's worshipped. Number two that I see from this part of the passage, that there's power in a symbol. There's power in a symbol. Anyone seen the, the show, This Is Us? man, you all got to have some quality shows in your life. If, it, if you didn't see it because you're reading books, then don't, don't take that. But if you're reading, watching other shows, then you need to watch This Is Us. Uh, I don't mind spoiling anything, because it's like episode two, we find out Jack dies, okay? And if you don't know who Jack is, go watch the show! But Jack, the, the dad of the, 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 the kids in the show, his wife, Rebecca... Will carry around a, a necklace that he gave to her, and he remembers her by and it 's a memento a memento this necklace it 's a powerful reminder of a relationship that that was very real to her and was formative to who she was. The necklace wasn 't jack; Jack died, and you have to wait till season two to find out that he choked on water it was a weird oh. Uh, I'm just kidding, I don't want to tell you how, but uh, the necklace was not Jack, but the necklace served as a reminder. Many of us have mementos of people that we've lost, or mementos of seasons of life and things that God has done for us. Now, to the degree that those things, those symbols, those signs, can help you to virtuously construct a healthy memory that helps you to have a trajectory in the future towards virtuous things that honor God, that symbol has value and power. There's power in a symbol. Paul reminds us here in verse 23 that this symbol, the way he uses this this bread and this this drink, it's, it's not something that he made up. It wasn't something that Constantine or the Catholic Church made up. This is an eternal symbol that Jesus instituted by his own will for the church. Now, I want to explain a little bit more about what this symbol means. And I have to start by pointing out a few things that it does not mean. Going to the Lord's table and receiving the body and the blood of Christ, the bread and the cup, respectively, It's not a work to gain God's favor. It's a symbol. It's, it's not a work that I do this and I gain God's favor. It's, it's a symbol. I'll give you another example of how another symbol shows this. A wedding ring, a wedding ring is a powerful symbol to remember a deeper relationship that I have that's built on faith and on promise. It reminds me, a wedding ring re- will remind you, husbands, that your wife is expensive. No, that your wife <laughs> is valuable, and it's a symbol of unending love. It's a circle without end. It's a powerful symbol. But if, if there was a random man that just kind of went up to our single ladies here and just said, Hey, nice to meet you, and he shakes her hand and puts a ring on her finger, would that make them married just because the symbol appeared on her hand? No. It's a symbol. The work of putting it on our hand has no inherent value outside of the faith that I place on it. There is relationship and the symbol can help produce remembrance and reinvigorate my future faith in this relationship. There's power in the symbol but it is a symbol. I I went and received the, the, the symbol without faith for 14 years. Well. I think I did First Communion that night, so like five years. And I'd go up, and, and I was taught, man, like, if you do a bunch of bad stuff, then, like, you got to go, you know, take the, take the bread and the cup so that you can be forgiven, and, and, uh, and so I would do this. But it was never in faith, and I never had a relationship with the Lord Jesus until I was 14 years old in a campus ministry, preached the gospel to me, and uh, I came to understand uh, in high school about Jesus dying for my sin so that I could live new life with the same resurrection power as him. If he pays for the penalty of my old life and my death that I've caused in my family, in the world, I can receive forgiveness and new life. It's a powerful thing that I experienced in understanding this for the first time. Now, that by faith caused me to be a new person by the power of the Holy Spirit before I partook in any sort of symbol but then I went to be water baptized and water baptism, doing the water baptism, some, some of y'all might have come from churches that you're taught that if you go do this baptism then you'll save yourselves water baptism is also a symbol but it's a powerful symbol I can remind you and tell you, hey, your past is in the past. It's okay. You're going to be all right. And I can tell you from up here. But if God demonstrates that your past is washed away through a powerful and timeless symbol like water baptism, then the next time that you're feeling guilty and thinking that you are who you were or you are what you've done or that your past has not been washed away, And what's great about the sign and the symbol of water baptism is that it might not save you, but you can remember what it was like the day, what you were wearing when you went into the water, what you smelled. There's a very real physical, tangible memory that can take you back to your place where Jesus reminded you of your washing so that now your mind is on the future that he has for you. It's a powerful symbol. The death in new life, like going into the water and out. Baptism, just like it's a symbol that'll remind you that you're washed of your past. The Lord's table is a symbol that Jesus is the provision for your present and your future. It's a powerful symbol. Coming to the table and receiving the elements doesn't save me by the work of it, but it reminds me of my sustenance in him. And when I when I worry about my my finances, I can taste and remember. I can taste the the sign that God's made for me to remind me that Jesus is enough for me. It's a powerful symbol. Catholics believe that that this bread and this cup actually become the tangible body and blood of the man Jesus. Um, I'm not going to go into a long rebuttal and criticism of that, but I will say that if that was true and if you could by the act of receiving the elements save yourself, it would nullify everything else we know in the gospel. No man seeks God, but God seeks to save the lost. And because of the body and blood of Jesus, we're saved And by grace of knowing this through the power of the Holy Spirit, I can say amen and apply my faith to that. I apply my faith to that the moment I believe. I apply my faith to that when I go into the waters of baptism. I apply my faith to that every time I confess my sin to my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I apply my faith to that when I remind my senses, my taste buds even, that Jesus is enough for me. He's more than enough for me. There's power in a symbol, Jesus is my whole provision. In receiving from the table of the Lord, I empty myself of all the junk that would take up space in my soul, and I receive in faith, in thought, in taste, in touch. I receive Jesus through faith and through the symbol. The other thing is, uh, what it's not, is it's not, it's not a physical meal alone. Uh, it's not a potluck. Uh, I mean, there's like maybe, I think, six calories or something you could get from receiving this. Uh, you don't have to be a dietitian to know that that's not going to sustain you. It's not an actual physical meal. Um, they were, in the Corinthian church, different people were kind of making a a real meal of it, and kind of, everyone was kind of having like a little potluck, but what happened inherent in that is that, that different people were kind of bringing certain things for their family and friends, and then there was all of a sudden, uh, it was punctuating the divisions within the church, simply by the people that had more, and you know, could put a little extra sauce on their stuff, uh, they they were kind of keeping separate from these people over there who had not. And he said, "You're not discerning the body, meaning the church is a place that you're despising by misunderstanding this and thinking that it's just a physical meal and becoming your own divisive potluck. You're not understanding that the body of Christ is people who have nothing to bring to the table, but their sin." And when we empty ourselves of our sin together collectively, we receive by faith the sustenance of Christ. You're not seeing this. You're despising this very truth by how you do this action. There's power in a symbol, and it's not a physical meal, and it's not something you can do that can save you. It shouldn't display our differences, but it should level the ground that we are a people that are mutually forgiven by Him and therefore uh, capacitated to be in relationship and walk in forgiveness with one another. It's not a physical meal. But I didn't say it's not a meal. It's, there's some very real provision here that we receive by faith. It's mostly spiritual, and there is power in this. Just like water baptism is a symbol, it doesn't save you, but it doesn't mean that there's not spiritual power that's being broken with water baptism. We can't, we can't overcorrect from Catholics or whatever to miss the power of what the Bible shows us in these symbols. Water baptism isn't just a bath, but there is washing involved in water baptism. It's a powerful symbol. And there is sustenance involved when I regularly remind myself and retool my thinking and and my body and my soul to remember that this thing that I walked into church burdened with and to the people of God with, I can release that among them through confessing my sin, emptying myself, giving away the thing I brought in here, and through faith in in the working of this gift that he's given us through the symbol, I can receive, very really, the power of Jesus in who I am. I can walk in discipleship and grow in discipleship through receiving this, this gift that he's given me. you ever forget, you can be reminded by the people of God and how we grow together that Jesus is enough for you. Let's get to our last verses here. Verse 31, uh, it previously just told us to examine ourselves, and then it says this. It says, because, verse 31, if we judge ourselves truly, we will not be judged. But when we're judged by the Lord, we're disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. God cares about how he's worshiped. There's power in a symbol. And finally, God wants it all. You might see here that it says, it says Judge yourself, examine yourself. He's, saying to ex- he's not saying, like, examine yourself, like, Am I all, do I have all my limbs and arms? No. He's talking about your heart. Are, are you walking? with anything that would prevent you from receiving all that God wants from you. God wants to give you everything. He wants to give you all the things that he's promised in the Bible. Pour it out on you, overflowing. But is your cup full of other things that would prevent you from receiving what God has for you? Unforgiveness, anxiety, fear, sexual impurity. What is in you that you need to give away to God and receive what he's given away through his son, Jesus, that he powerfully displays and affects in this moment where you go to him. God wants it all. He wants you to examine what's inside of you, but then if you notice, you read through this passage, you'll see that it's not that God is not displeased with some of the things that they were doing like with their bodies and stuff, right? Right? So God was displeased with them not understanding certain realities on the inside of them in faith, but God was also displeased with certain things practically that they were doing. So which is it? Does God want them to examine their hearts or does God want them to change certain things they're doing? And the answer is God wants it all. God wants to be worshipped externally and internally. God cares about how he's worshipped and there's power in this symbol. And so he wants everything we do and think and feel to reflect his glory. And he's given us a way to grow in that. So we examine our hearts internally, we judge ourselves regularly. We make a habit of releasing the things inside of us through confession. There's life and death in the power of the tongue. And we're going to talk about that in a second. We examine ourselves. What, how, why, what do we examine? Do we examine if we're good enough to receive Jesus? Have I made enough good decisions this week? Have I done bad things this week? Or No, that's not what you examine. By the way, if you ever wonder if you're good enough, the answer is clear. You're not. You're not good enough. But that's why Jesus fully gave himself to people who were fully dead in sin. The question is, examine yourself to see if you believe that. Uh, do you believe that Jesus is enough? Or are there other things that you just, you just want more? And, and you need to confess that. You need to release it. You need to give yourself away. You examine yourself. Internally. If it's your heart that he cares about, here's how it relates to your external behavior and how we approach the Lord's table, what you do with your body or, or with your customs and rituals and our, our traditions as a church will either underline what we believe in our hearts or it will undermine what we believe and teach. I'll give you an example. And we all, we all agree with this, that it's not just about the heart, okay? Because if, if I were to go to coffee with you and say, hey, I want to share my heart with you, and you're looking at me, you know, the whole time we're like at coffee, and Stephen, you just got your phone out, and you're just looking at your phone the whole time. If I said, man, you're kind of hurting my feelings, you'd say, what, I'm listening to you. Well, there's something you're doing with your body that's not correlating with what you're claiming here. That's a problem. What you're doing with your body is undermining what you're claiming with your heart. That's what Paul was saying. Hey, when you come together and you're practicing, it's not just that you're kind of doing it a little bit wrong, but what you're doing is not correlating with what you're supposed to be believing. That's what he's saying. What we do can underline, though, our faith. Like if I say, I trust God. Okay, well, that's a declaration. But when I tithe, that's a symbol that puts a punctuation on my trust for God and a blessing, a very real blessing. Is tithing going to save me? No. But will I have effectual power, that symbol, that gift that God has given me for me to walk in freedom? Yes. So God cares about our heart, but he's also given us gifts and external ways to grow in the thing that he's given us as a gift in our heart. Does that make sense? So for 1,600 years, For a long time, the church has celebrated the story of the gospel when we gather together. And one of the main elements and the powerful elements about how we receive Jesus is not just in our thoughts, but in our togetherness at the Lord's table. But I don't want to just leave it there. When Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me, he's saying, Do all these things that you do when you gather to remember me. Meaning, who he is and what he does for us, a.k.a. the gospel. So in history, the church would get together and the church fathers set it up really smart. They were smarter than me. They were smarter than our traditions. and the, the, They're smarter than the, the, the few things that we've kind of changed in our culture. They're smarter and more transcendent because they were led by God to tell the story of the gospel and how they gathered. Here's what they would do. They would tell the story of the gospel, the creation, the the fall of mankind, redemption and restoration in every gathering Early church would get together and they would sing acclamation songs and praise of God and his glory and creation and lift him up. And if many of y'all come from uh, churches like this, there would be what's called a responsorial psalm where you would sing in response and there's participation and you have to kind of know a few things and call back and say, thanks be to God, all this stuff. And we try not to complicate it too much with things that you got to remember, but we want you to participate because when you go you you lift up God in church together God you are good I might not be so good today but you sure are still and in this moment when when we tell the story together in coming to church every good story has a tension point every good story has a tension point for this is us it's it's Jack what happens to Jack okay every good story has a tension point in the gospel story it's our fall. That's why in enacting the story of the gospel together, we confess our sin. And sometimes there's silence in the tension of the story where, where it's a little awkward, like me saying, God, I've sinned against you. There's tension in the story because remembering what I've fallen to helps me to celebrate how Jesus has forgiven me. The third part of the story, redemption. That because of the body and blood of Jesus very really shed for me on a Friday afternoon in history that we call Good Friday, he paid the penalty for my fall. And finally, I can, I can walk and enjoy him and grow in him and remind myself that he is my provision and all that I need And we together receive of him over and over again. We come together to grow and be formed in him. Tell the story of the gospel. We're going to enact that together right now. Would you stand to your feet with me?